0: Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, everybody. I pray that you're doing great. Today, on this Always More Wednesday, we're going to be hearing from an article from one of my favorite Catholic apologists, a convert, uh, Jimmy Aiken. He is a Catholic Answers apologist and the author of many books, and um, I highly recommend going to see all of his material. He's incredible. Um, today, we're going to be hearing from him from an article titled, Why I'm Not Eastern Orthodox, because when he made his journey into the Catholic faith, he was evangelical, very anti-Catholic at one point. And um, when he started discovering the truth of the church and the truth of the teachings of orthodoxy, he really had to consider if he's going to be Eastern Orthodox or Catholic. And so he went through this whole process of discerning all of that. And he wrote this article to describe um, that process. And it's really, really eye-opening. So um, I'm not going to go through the whole thing in detail, so I'll just kind of give an overview, but I'll read the last part that I really want to talk about, which is more about on the papacy and unity. So he talked about, um, in the, this first part of the article, it'll be in the show notes, he talks about how he converted from evangelical, and then he you know, was trying to decide if he should be Orthodox or Catholic. And then uh, the first part he goes into, he talks about word fights, on how Catholic and Orthodox and, uh, substantive, substantively Teach the exact like the exact same thing. However, it's just all these different terminologies. So he uses he goes through this this an example of how Catholics call um, the purifying um, cleansing before entering into heaven purgatory, whereas Orthodox has the exact same teaching, but they don't use purgatory as uh, you know describing that they use more of an imagery of these toll houses on their road to heavenly glory. And so he sees like all these differences in terminology, but they mean the exact same thing. He sees this as um being uh categorized as the word fights that St. Paul tells us not to go, not to get into, and he warns us to go against. And he uh talks about word fights being useless in First Timothy Timothy six, four through five, and second Timothy two, fourteen. So it doesn't matter which terminology they use, but it's the substantively the same, the same teachings. Then he goes into the Filioque, and the Filioque is Latin for and the Son. And this is part of where um, the Eastern Church started breaking off from the Western Church because after the Council of Nicaea, the the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son that we say every Sunday at Mass— um, it was only from the Father. And then it wasn't until um, more and more heresies came uh, up um, in the in the Western Church where they started to add, well, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Eastern Church looked at that and said, well, you guys are changing the creed. That shouldn't be changed. And um, so the filioque, what became this, uh, this issue? And just really quickly, um, when... He goes into, Jimmy Akin goes into when he was studying that, he recognized that the force of the Catholic arguments concerning the subject from adding and the Son, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's you know it's consistent with 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 the Bible. So various Bible passages taken together suggest that the Holy proceed the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son as well as the Father, and that's in he cites Matthew ten twenty, John fifteen twenty six, Acts two thirty three, and Galatians four six. But he says ultimately, though, I recognize that it was not up to me to dis- to decide this question. It was up to the church on a subject this far from human experience. My feeble mind cannot be relied upon. I would have to rely on the Holy Spirit's guidance of the church, which put me back to considering which church was Christ's true church. So now I'll start reading from here that he talks about the papacy. The other most cited reason for separation between Catholics and Orthodox is the papacy. Orthodox do not recognize the Pope as having the kind of teaching and governing authority that the Catholic Church claims. When I was evangelical, considering Catholicism, and previously when I was quite anti-Catholic, I recognized that there is a certain logic to the office of the papacy. Organizations need leaders if they are, are to hang together, and if Christ's church is, visible, is a visible church, then it needs a single earthly leader. It was because I then thought of Christ's church as an invisible union of all true believers that I did, didn't recognize its need for a pope. The absence of a pope from Eastern Orthodoxy clearly had negative effects. With no pope to call or recognize ecumenical councils, the Orthodox haven't had one in centuries. As Callisto Ware virtually admits, there is no practical way for the Orthodox to call or agree upon an ecumenical council. The absence of a Pope has led to a kind of magisterial paralysis on the part of the Orthodox, and this concerned me very much as I recognized the need for Christ's church to have a functioning teaching authority capable of settling new theological controversies. I also recognized that if Peter were the rock Christ speaks of in Matthew sixteen eighteen, this would make him the earthly leader of the church in Jesus's absence. I just didn't yet recognize him as the rock. I even recognized that scripture had in, th- in it things that like an echo of papal infallibility. In the Old Testament, the high priest could inquire of God via the Urim and Thummim, the sacred lot. And if God chose to answer, the answer would be correct. And, ex- and he cites Exodus 28, 29, 30. There was also the incident in which Caiaphas unwittingly prophesies about the death of Christ. John specifically tells us that he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nations. John eleven fifty one. There thus seemed to have some kind of special teaching charism associated with the earthly leader of God's people in the Old Testament. While the era of new public revelation is now closed, it wasn't unreasonable that there uh, be a special teaching charism associated with the office of the earthly leader of God's people in the New Testament age. It's a good thing the Catholics are wrong about Peter being the rock, I used to say, or they'd have an interesting argument for papal infallibility here. It emerged in my reading that many Orthodox were prepared to make two key concessions regarding the papacy. One, that Jesus did give Peter a form of primacy over the other apostles, though this was conceived of first among equals role, and that the bishop of Rome is in a special sense the successor of Peter, though other bishops may, also may in some sense be Peter's successors. These concessions seemed decisive to me. The minute it is admitted that Peter had some kind of primacy given to him by Jesus, it becomes very hard to sustain the idea that this was only a kind of first among equals ceremonial authority, such as that of the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. First century Palestinians had a uh, theocratic view of, of government, literally. It was the first century Jewish historian Josephus who coined the term theocracy to describe the Palestinian Jews' belief that God was the king of Israel and his earthly leaders were his proxies. The political institutions the apostles were familiar with didn't have people who had figurehead positions. Rulers in the east were strong men. If God gave you authority, he gave you authority. The early church certainly understood Christ's ministers as having authority over laity. And he cites Hebrews thirteen seventeen. And if Jesus put one particular minister over the others, it would be understood that he had authority over them. In answering the question of which of the apostles is the greatest in Luke 22, 24, Jesus may have stressed the principle of servant leadership, uh, citing 22, 25 through 27, And stressed that all the apostles would have authority in verses 28 through 30 but he identified peter as the one with pastoral charge concerning the others in verses 31 through 32. the concession that the bishop of rome is in a special sense the successor of peter also had important implications it meant that both groups could admit that the pope had a special authority based on his connection to peter the point of dispute was the kind of authority While it is understandable that people in the East would be more comfortable with a pope who had ceremonial role in presiding over the other bishops of the world, I had concluded that this kind of figurehead role was unlikely to be what Jesus gave Peter. Another consideration presented itself, and this is my favorite that he talks about. If God set up the institution of the papacy, which group was he more likely to guide into a correct understanding of it? The group that possessed it or the group that was in separation from it? Common sense would suggest that God is more likely to guide the group that possesses an institution to a correct understanding of it. Biblical precedent would suggest this. When the northern kingdom seceded from the south in Israel, a question arose about the Jerusalem temple. God had designated this temple as uniquely his. It was the proper place for Hebrews to worship, including the Israelites of the northern kingdom. And he cites Deuteronomy 14, 23 to 26 and 1 Kings eleven thirty six. 36. It was the southern kingdom that properly understood the role of the Jerusalem temple and the northern kingdom came to worship at other unauthorized sites. And the last section is called Fractured Unity. As I learned more about about orthodoxy, another set of factors seemed to weigh against it. both Both Eastern Orthodox and Catholics say the Nicene's Creed affirmation that the Church of Christ is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, but which has the better claim to these notes? I couldn't say one was holier than the other; both have great holiness and great wickedness in their histories, and making a judgment based on the variable tides of history would be unwise. Both are apostolic in the sense that they both have apostolic succession. But the Orthodox communion has an issue when it comes to being one. I'm not referring to the dissent and division that has been part of every Christian community since the beginning. I'm referring to the fact that not all Orthodox churches are in full communion with each other. There are situations in which Church A is not in communion with Church B, and Church B is in communion with Church C, but A is not in communion with C. For example, the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia is in communion with some Orthodox churches, but not others, notably the Russian Orthodox Church. The Eastern Orthodox also have an issue in the degree to which they display Catholicity. Compared to the Catholic Church, the Orthodox tend to be confined to few ethnicities, Russian, Greek, etc. The Catholic Church, by contrast, embraces far more ethnicities. This is not an argument by itself, as Catholicity is not simply measured by how many cultures a church embraces. Originally embraced only one, but Christ gave the church a mandate to preach the gospel to all peoples in Matthew 28:19 19-20, and it is worth noting that the Catholic Church has fulfilled that mandate more effectively than the Orthodox Church has. It was also worth noting the size difference between the two. A little over half of all Christians are Catholic, while a little under a quarter are Orthodox. Again, this is not an argument by itself, but it is contributed to an overall impression that raises the question, which of the following is easier to accept? Option 1. Church A is the true church of Christ, despite being a small, ethnically limited, and internally fractured communion that does not possess the admittedly divine institution of the papacy, while Church B is a schismatic church, despite it being far larger, having evangelized far more cultures, not having internal full communion problems, and having the institution of the papacy. Or option two, church B is the true church of Christ, and it just mentioned characteristics are signs of God's providential guidance, while church A is the body in schism. It seemed to me that it was easier to explain matters if, matters if one accepted the second possibility, that the Catholic church is the true bride of Christ and the Orthodox are, regrettably, in schism at present. It would be much harder to maintain that the Catholic church is a false super church that dwarfs the true church. Protestants might be able to argue that case by labeling it the Whore of Babylon and attributing it all kinds of evil doctrine to it, but that argument would not work for the Orthodox who are in near total agreement with Catholic doctrine. I concluded that I would have to bite the bullet and accept the hard sayings of the Catholic Church. After all, Jesus had some hard sayings himself."